Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Dr. Jim Chow, the director of the RAND Corporation's legendary Project Air Force, that along with its pioneering uh, and ongoing work on nuclear warfare lie at the heart of the federally funded Research and Development Center uh, on the waters of the Pacific Ocean in uh, Santa Monica. Each year, RAND hosts the West Coast Aerospace Forum in concert with two other FFRDCs, the Aerospace Corporation and MITRE, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. Jim, uh, thanks so very much for joining us. It's uh, an absolute honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks, Vago. I appreciate your opening comments and, and happy to talk to you. Uh, indeed, an absolute pleasure and long overdue, I, I would say. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage and our coverage of both the Halifax International Security Forum and the Reagan National Defense Forum uh, and the West Coast Aerospace Forum, uh, three important forums on the calendar right back to back to back. Uh, were uh, sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Uh, Jim, every year, uh, the West Coast Aerospace Forum um, comes on the morning of uh, the big pilgrimage uh, to the Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley for uh, the Reagan uh, Forum. And you guys are always very thoughtful. Try to end it at three so that everybody can make it to the big star-studded uh, Friday uh, reception. Uh, your event this year uh, began uh, and is really a jewel of an event, by the way, for folks who have not been out there. So I commend folks to actually make the trip uh, because you guys really cover um, so many issues that are at the core of aerospace uh, power on cyber, on industrial base. Uh, but it started with Ukraine uh, lessons that are relevant also for the Pacific and uh, former uh, USAFE commander Cobra Harigian uh, really shined. I mean, his first public comments uh, since uh, stepping down in the middle of the year when he was replaced by General Hecker and Cruiser Wilsbach uh, actually giving a lot of insight uh, as well uh, about the lessons and how applicable uh, they are. You were in the front row uh, for the whole panel. Some folks had to leave because of the B-21 uh, rollout. Walk us through what the key takeaways were across uh, the space, the cyber, the air power, uh, and industrial base panels. Yeah, I, I, I'd highlight uh, four high-level uh, takeaways, um, both for both for uh, Europe and and the Pacific. I mean, the I mean for Europe, it just confirmed the importance and the strength of the NATO alliance, um, and in terms of uh, deterring. Russia and, and uh, protecting our NATO partners. But beyond NATO, and as we think about our Pacific allies and partners, yet again, it highlights the need for, you know, building those relationships. It, we, we've had, we've built that NATO relationship over a number of years, and in the Pacific, we continue to do that. But I mean, it does require one-on-one -on -one and systemic processes to enable them, and that takes leadership. And that came through in my, in what I heard from from uh, General Harigi and, and, and General Wilsbach. Um, it means having even greater transparency of sharing information and enabling policies to you know, help advise, arm as necessary and interoperate with our allies and partners. So all of those are part of you know, building those alliances, both in Europe and, and in the Pacific. Another 
a key takeaway is, is considering the unattractive thought of protracted wars for future defense planning. I mean, sadly, I don't see, uh, you know, it, the, the current conflict in Ukraine clearly still will take additional time and, and, and potentially a great amount of time before it resolves. And, and, um, and, and so I, I think, you know, that is not a happy thought, but for future defense planning, that needs to be a, a, a pretty deliberate consideration as we think about that in the future. And, and related to that is my next one, which is on the supply chain and the industrial base. I mean, the importance of that. And, and um, I was happy to see in the FY23 NDAA authorizing uh, multi-year procurement of munitions. I think that's a good sign, but clearly paying greater attention to the supply chain and industrial base uh, was a, another takeaway. Lastly, I would say the importance of multi-domain and, um, and, the, and, and the ability to really integrate those capabilities. Uh, you know, in, in, in uh, land, certainly is, is a key domain in the Ukraine fight, but air, space, cyber, and sea have all played uh, an important role as well to varying degrees. And, and just highlighting the importance of being able to integrate those together uh, is another key takeaway. Um, did you, you know, one of the sort of, there were a couple of moments um, that uh, were, you know, just uh, going back to the conversation uh, with uh, both generals uh, Harigian and Wilsbach, uh, right? I mean, some revelations. One was uh, Cobra's focus on the importance of leadership and distributed operations, right? We're really putting our money where our mouth is by giving mission command so that folks can execute at scale. And as you said, with uh, 30 allies and partners in NATO, it was, uh, you know, airspace issues. I mean, a whole bunch of things that had to get worked out, not necessarily involving the people at the very top. And the other thing I thought was interesting was uh, Cruiser Wilsbach's uh, point that the that an F-15 equipped with the pause uh, package uh, can, can actually, in the electromagnetic spectrum, become kind of stealth-like in its capabilities. And I thought, you know, and obviously the U.S. Air Force is kind of interested in that. What, what, what did, you know, how did those two jump out at you? And, uh, you know, again, I mean, in terms of some other specific revelatory moments, I mean, I thought both of those were sort of interesting observations, right? One yeah, on manpower. Comments. Yeah, yeah, those are both great comments from 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 uh, uh, General Harigian and, and General Wilsbach. I, I, um, yeah, I, I think General Harigian's comments of building a coalition, I, I think it just reminded me of the importance of having the right culture in a service. I mean, I compare and contrast, um, you know, between the culture that drove kind of, you know, Russia's current operations and how it's uh, how how operations have uh, uh, um, evolved over time uh, since the beginning, and then and then uh, the culture of our services, including our air force, and how that um, drives initiative and then training, um, and and being able to have mission command and delegate mission command. But in the instance of General Harigian taking that leadership and and working with his fellow service partners in the Alliance has played a huge role. Absolutely. Um, um, oh, yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was, I was just going to uh, jump to uh, General Wilsbach. I'm not familiar with the specific capabilities of, of EPAWS and its installation on the F-15. I, I would just more generally highlight um, 
Yeah, for for competing with peer and near peer states, it is going to require a, a belt and suspenders approach to providing survivable capabilities and electronic warfare and and um, uh, DECM, uh, Defensive Electronic Countermeasures, which EPOS is an example of uh, having good capabilities. That is a, an important tool in the toolkit um, for having survivable capabilities um, when competing and deterring and hopefully deterring, but, but if necessary, fighting with peer and, and, and near peer uh, state capabilities. As uh, fulfilling as it is uh, that the alliance is supporting Ukraine the way it's supporting it uh, and the losses that the Russians uh, are taking, ultimately, it's also a demonstration of the failure of deterrence. I say this to a Rand person where you guys spend an enormous amount of bandwidth on deterring whatever the problem is, uh, right? I mean, across even your social science work is how do you avoid uh, the costly problem as opposed to remediation at the far end of it? When you look, Jim, at China and the capabilities we need to develop, I mean, obviously the department comes under some criticism for not moving uh, quickly enough. You know, you mentioned munitions, that's a step in the right direction, You, uh, but not fast enough uh, in the minds of some, uh, still banking on future capabilities as opposed to current ones. Um, you mentioned multi-domain operations. I mean, JADC2 still, uh, despite efforts, there is a concern that it's simply not the joint all-domain command and control system uh, is not moving as quickly as it needs to, although there are some people in the department who push back on that. For, from your standpoint, what are all the elements and actions we need to be uh, taking um, in order to be able to continue to deter the Chinese, right? There is a war fighting focus, but sometimes maybe not as much, you know, we have to deter this because had we deterred Ukraine, we'd have saved a trillion dollars. No kidding, right? So what, what are the actions we need to be thinking of and some of the things you guys are thinking about at RAND that can help the department make better uh, choices maybe? Yeah, I mean, I, you, you highlighted the importance of deterrence and you know there are many, many um, theories of deterrence, but you know, deterring from a position of strength, deterring by denial, is an important consideration. And, and a lot of RAND work highlights the need to be able to deter by denial, which means you know, having the capabilities, if deterrence fails, you know, having the capabilities um, to, to deny the enemy to meet their objectives. Um, and so uh, the, the China-Taiwan scenario is often used as a, as a planning scenario for, for you know, highlighting capabilities needed for deterring by, by denial. And, and um, you know, the MDS clearly lays out its, you know, elements of, of building up um, in addition to capabilities. I mean, I, I mentioned building a coalition as part of that and, um, and then, you know, uh, considering enduring advantages for our future joint force. I would include the industrial base as part of that campaigning, right? I mean, so all, all of those are important elements of, of um deterring China and then if necessary prevailing in a future conflict in a, in a scenario like China Taiwan. I'm someone with a technologist background, but I have a, a great appreciation for um, military operations and military history. And, and so, I mean, non-technological factors as usual have been key drivers to uh, determining outcomes. I, I think will to fight is an important aspect. So. So building that coalition, um, um, you know, helping advise them as part of a coalition to have the right kinds of capabilities um, 
And, you know, for a Taiwan scenario, um, some of those, you know, joint and combined capabilities will involve countering uh, maritime targets. That, that's clearly going to be critical. And, and um, air and space power have a great role in that. And, and air superiority is going to be a, an important enabler. Air superiority, I think, you know, it's a big theater. And so air superiority at the, at the time and location of our choosing is going to be critical to enabling countering maritime targets. So making sure we have the right set of capabilities um, in terms of platforms, but um, the right training, the right partners and advising them on the right kinds of capabilities, you know, having the right policies so that we can share with them appropriately. I think that's an important thing. And we can, you know, um, I think progress there, but, but again, as you highlighted, we need to, we need to move out more quickly. I, I want to sort of pull on uh, three uh, of those uh, threads a little bit, right? There is um, obviously we've depleted our weapons uh, stocks. Your industrial base panel uh, addressed that. We're at a time of enormous technological change where a bunch of um, smaller uh, innovative companies may have better mousetraps uh, that um, we uh, likely should be embracing a little bit more quickly, but I mean, obviously there's institutional inertia and momentum. And then, you know, on the multi-domain side, the JADC2 program and these interconnectivity uh, initiatives are, are not moving as, as quickly as, 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 they, as they need to. What's sort of your sort of more integrated recommendation for lack of a better word uh, on, um, on each of these pieces that are all interlinked with our ability and integral, in fact, to our ability to deliver not just air and space power, right, or airspace and cyber power, but indeed maritime land, right, across uh, the full, uh, you know, multi-domain uh, operation. Yeah, I, I, I think on industrial base, um, I think identifying the right, I mean, clearly we're going to need a more robust and resilient industrial base and to take advantage of of that enduring capability. And so that means things like um, increased use of multi, multi-year buys, but it, but it starts with what, I mean, we, we, there are costs to building up an industrial base. So identifying the right areas where we really need to build up the capacity, identifying what capacity needs we may have, and those are different in, in you know, depending on theater, and, and, and then working with our allies to share some of those responsibilities. So I, I think you see in, in you know, promising signals from our allies on increased capabilities, increased defense budgets. Um, you know, so I hold out hope there, but that's an important aspect of it on the industrial base. Um, and so uh, that's what I, I would recommend at a high level on the industrial base. On the multi-domain, there's so much to say there. I, I would say um, an important aspect is, and in, in, it's not underappreciated, but it's it's it it is worth reminding about interoperable comms capabilities and and um, that uh, are both uh, resilient or have a combination of attributes of resilient redundant and interoperable. Now, can you have all of those at the same? I mean, I, I think 
you know, some combination and, and not all of our systems or partners will have all of those, but attributes of all of those and making sure we're working that hard now and enabling those quickly. Commercial, the commercial world, you mentioned, you know, the commercial world is uh, a driver of a lot of the innovation and technology and that clearly is playing a role and will play a role in the future. So how to incorporate that, learning how to incorporate that, um, identifying policies uh, to help integrate that, integrate them um, with military capabilities more quickly. Learning about that is really important. Uh, our, our potential foes will be doing the same. So, so us learning how to do that more quickly will be really important. In terms of industrial capability, uh, right? Um, you uh, just mentioned that you know you've got to pick your spots, right? Not not everything uh, is equal, and I think that we have a tendency in the United States um, of of having enough resources where we actually don't pick any spots, and we uh, convince ourselves that we don't need to necessarily, you know what I mean? So then everything becomes important. And if everything's important, nothing ultimately is important. Uh, from from your perspective, when it comes to the prioritization, you know, whether on the industrial base side, whether on the munitions side, right? I mean, again, a, a little bit of a shortfall in the long range effectors we're going to need. I, I mean, I think it's patently absurd that, you, you know, um, LRASM has been a number one Pacific, Indo-Pacific uh -huh. requirement. And, and, you know, here we are that by 2027, you know, we're going to have 430 weapons that will be a couple of days worth of shooting, right? God forbid, if things go wrong, is, is maybe not the clarity of thinking and prioritization that we need. Um, you know, and, and then what to connect and how to connect it, right? You gave us a little bit of a, what, what, are, what are, you know, if you were going to prioritize, like in each of these categories, like here are the core and most important things we need to focus on, right? Because because of the CHIPS Act and everything else, it's now like, oh my God, everything is important and we have to, you know, replicate a lawn furniture industry in America, you know, just because they make lots of things in plastic, right? I mean, that might not necessarily, it's a, it's a, it's a stretch and nobody's making that argument, right? But what, what would you prioritize from each of these categories, Jim? Yeah, I, I think in addition to being able to counter the maritime targets and, and you know, I'll, 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 um, I'll accept your, uh, uh, highlighting the LRASM shortfall as as a as an example of that, but but um, so I mean, a kill chain requires uh, ISR capabilities in order for an LRASM to be effective. So 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 that's a piece of it, um, and then having the communications capabilities that we just talked about. Um, that's all part of you know what they call kill chains. And so thinking about it from a kill, you know, I, I think from a strategy, you know, start from with China as identified as the number one priority in the India, NDS, thinking about the kinds of potential scenarios that we need to deter, and then thinking about the kinds of targets we need to go after, you know, taking that top-down approach is really important. So countering maritime. And so that I think about kill chains as part of that. And, and, um, as I highlighted earlier, air superiority, without air superiority as the enabler, we won't be able to counter those maritime targets because air and space are both critical elements and being able to protect those using cyber are critical elements to going after maritime targets. And by the way, I mean, maritime, you know, there's two ways to get over to Taiwan, you know, 
through um, maritime, but airborne is also another way that they can, you know, um, place forces on, on Taiwan. So air superiority at the time and location of our choosing, which again means the right platforms, but it does mean the right quality and quantity of weapons on the on the uh, air superiority side too. You know, I'll 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 say that the um, the war in Ukraine really did emphasize the importance of seed suppression of any enemy air defenses. Um, in the example of of Russia, it highlighted shortfalls that they've had in suppression of enemy air defenses. But it just overall re-emphasizes the challenge. It's a hard mission, and and there's not many countries that are capable. I think I would say the United States is is clearly the most capable. And and um, you know, just bringing the allies and partners back into this, I think I think they can help us with that kind of capability. Um, and, and we shouldn't take for granted our seed capabilities. Um, uh, and we will need to continue developing and training at right at the correct scale for to, in order to deter in a Pacific scenario. So, so uh, yeah, I, I think there's a number of areas on, on the industrial base, but um, yeah, I mean, it's frequent in RAND studies for munitions shortfalls to be you know, something that uh, needs to be reemphasized. And I think people get that. Uh, that is part of the debate. Um, uh, and it's just, you know, like you said, and like we've been talking about here, it, it is um, focusing on those specific ones that need the most attention. And from a connectivity standpoint, right, I mean, Frank uh, Kendall, the Air Force Secretary, uh, got a lot of attention when he said, you know, look, what is it we're trying to accomplish with this thing? Because in the earlier iterations, everything was supposed to be connected to everything. And now we're trying to take a more disciplined approach, obviously putting Indo-Pacific uh, Indo Command in the lead. From your standpoint, what is it, what, what are the foundational elements of what this system needs to be able to do? Um, at a time when the technology is enabling greater connectivity than ever, right? We're doing a series which Ultra is uh, sponsoring, uh, where we're looking at you know how cognition is going to change because of AI-enabled decision making. Um, you know how 5G and 6G and next G are all going to shape um, how we deploy capabilities. But foundationally, right? You have to prioritize from your standpoint. What is it that most importantly this system needs to do? to magnify American advantage, no, no matter where we operate? It, it really does need to enable, there, there is um, increasing ubiquity of, of sensors that, out, that are out there, whether they're military sensors or commercial sensors. And you see in Ukraine, these, these quadcopters that are essentially being used as spotters. I mean, I, you know, I mean, it's not, exactly a new concept. I mean, going right. back to World War One, but so it really, an increasing ubiquity of sensors and being able to um, connect them and then ultimately make decisions uh, for military effects, whether those are kinetic or non-kinetic, right? Uh, non-kinetic operations are an important aspect of this too. And to be able to battle manage. Now that's, and, and that sounds straightforward, but it's really complicated. And, and, you know, these are important life deciding decisions made by commanders. They need to be able to trust the information that they're receiving from all these dis distributed sensors, all of differing qualities of information. 
Right. And and so um, uh, it's it is. I mean, I mean, at a high level, it's straightforward. But but actually, there's a you know a variety of technologies and policy. And, and when you bring in AI, you know, you need to think about things like trust. Um, it, it does get quite complicated and our, and our acquisition systems aren't necessarily um, uh, adept at, you know, crossing all these different complex boundaries. Uh, I, I think there are a lot of people, Jim, who would uh, agree with you on uh, on that uh, estimate. Um, I want to uh, go to uh, two other uh, and and again, right? I mean, the trust issue then plays into cyber, uh, which was another uh, terrific conversation uh, that uh, one of the one of the panels was and and uh, Klon Kitchen uh, of AEI uh, had some particularly thoughtful sort of assessments on you know why uh, the cyber is not the dog that you know is, is barking, you know, is, is the dog barking and it's being stifled or, uh, yeah. you know, it's a combination of, of, of factors. And I think we are defending forward and blunting some of the things that they're doing, uh, as he said. Um, let, let me take you uh, uh, really quick because we have a couple of minutes left and I want to ask you a nuclear enterprise question uh, and, and a quick B-21 question. Um, everybody's uh, happy that the United States has a new uh, stealth bomber. Uh, electronic capabilities of the jet are going to be tremendous. It's more sustainable. It's a smaller aircraft. The uh, uh, Air Force uh, obviously had to develop an airplane that matched a hard uh, cost cap target uh, in order to be able to get more airplanes. And, and there's uh, always a benefit, as we heard from uh, Frank Kendall uh, yesterday uh, on the program, right? Qu quantity has a quality all its own, and we can't afford just to have 20 airplanes. Uh, and so hopefully this program paves the way, not just for 100 airplanes, but maybe even 200, as Dave Duptula has argued, uh, especially because it's payload limitations. It is a smaller jet. It's 20,000 pound payload, about 4,000 uh, to 6,500 miles in range, depending on what is it you want to do with it? Uh, and it has the same speed limitation, for example, as the B-2. It's it's not uh, faster. Uh, from your standpoint, is this the right jet at the right time? And how does it fit into that air supremacy NGAD vision, right? Next generation air dominance vision um, that is so important if the United States is to maintain that war fighting edge uh, in the Pacific or anywhere else on the planet? I think it's the right airplane at the right time. Um... I, I share Secretary Kendall's comment um, that that quantity has a quality all of its own. I mean, this is a dual role, dual capable aircraft needing to support a number of combatant commands and to provide deterrence both for the nuclear, you know, for STRATCOM, provide conventional deterrence in UCOM and in all theaters. And so there is going to be a demand for these kinds of capabilities. And, and if you don't have quantity, you're just going to be spread too thin, right? And, and so, yeah, from that standpoint, I, it is the right aircraft at the right time. I, I you know, personally have done a lot of long-range strike analysis over my career, and, and there's always trades involved. But um, you know, for the Pacific, range payload is critical. And it does provide an element of range payload, provides you the quantity um, so, so that you can meet several demands. So from that standpoint, um, you know, obviously the program has a ways to go, but, but uh, so far so good. Um, um, uh, yeah, I can't really say much about, I'll just, uh, on NGAD, I, I can't really say much about NGAD other than, you know, there's, there's clearly a need to 
have air superiority, which in the Pacific will, you know, you need to be operating from from distances that that you know maybe place less demands on air refueling. Um, um, you know, if we can place increasing um, reliance on our on our um, appropriate weapons that can be carried, uh, being able to operate from bases more distant, and then and then uh, you know, so that we can um, drive our quality advantages over our opponent. I think that is an important attribute of, of air superiority. So, so I can't really say, you know, what role that the B-21 would, would play in that kind of mission set. But, but I mean, I think some of those common attributes of range and payload will clearly be emphasized uh, in the Pacific. Let me ask you uh, one last question about the nuclear uh, enterprise. Uh, Dr. Geist, uh, who's on your team, uh, is uh, one of the nation's leading thinkers uh, on uh, uh, nuclear and America's nuclear uh, infrastructure and capabilities. Um, and, and Jim, almost any, you know, it's great that we are modernizing our nuclear uh, you know, uh, capabilities, right? Whether it's the uh, ground-based strategic deterrent, uh, whether it's the sea-based deterrent in the form of the Columbia-class uh, ballistic missile submarine. But one of the most fundamental elements of this is actually reconstituting America's ability as the inventor of the atom bomb um, to actually have an industrial base that can produce these weapons, right? I mean, we, we talk about, you know, the pits are fine of the weapons, the nuclear cores of them, uh, the last of which were produced uh, in the early 90s or in the 90s, whereas it seems like a lot of skills have been lost. There's a lot of reporting on this and the kind of investment that's necessary uh, and how much of it needs to be pieced back together. And yet, you know, time and again, it doesn't seem as much of an urgent, you know, like sort of an understanding of other nations have an ability that we're actually may have lost or is severely compromised. Um, you know, as Michael pointed out also, right, that our infrastructure is very different and spread across far more labs and far, far, far more places. Doesn't there need to be more of sort of a clarion call that the nation that invented the atom bomb in an age that is becoming increasingly nuclear may not actually have the fundamental capabilities to produce the tools it needs? <laughs> it's great to have the submarine. It's great to have a bomber. It's great to have an ICBM, but you actually need the warheads to put on those weapons. Yeah, I think there needs to be a, a more deliberate look at um, uh, looking at our industrial base on that front and and seeing where we need to reinvest on on that. I think there's an absolute need, and 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 you highlighted. I mean, the the world is getting only more proliferated in terms of these capabilities, and China's clear uh, increase in their capabilities is is one example of that, an important example of that. So yeah, I, I think there needs to be definitely a more deliberate look in, at uh, uh, rebuilding our industrial base on that front. Do do people and last uh, follow up? I mean, do uh, and we're going to have uh, him on the program to talk in greater detail about this. But are you satisfied that people even understand the dire nature of the the problem as it exists now? Because it's I, actually alarming if you think about it. But it's not yeah. clear that a lot of people are thinking about it. Yeah, I don't. I, I think it it is underappreciated, and I think it deserves more attention for sure. So I would say no. I don't think people have have uh, thought about it carefully enough, or or thought about it at all in some instances. So, yeah, I think it definitely deserves more attention. 
uh, and we will uh, and we will be doing that, Dr. Chow. Uh, thanks so very much for joining us, uh, Jim. Absolute uh, pleasure having you on the program. Look forward to having you and more uh, members of the RAND team uh, on the program uh, going forward. And we'll start with Dr. Geist, who can give us uh, the terrifying briefing on the future of America's nuclear weapons <laughs> production capabilities, maybe to spur a little bit more urgent action. Absolutely. Great. Thanks, Vago. Appreciate it.